Welcome to Be With Champions. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And today, wow, I have an incredible chat with arguably the greatest of all time triathletes, Jan Frudino. Jan discusses his 2008 gold medal performance and his highs and lows the years following. The highs being obviously 70.3 and Ironman world titles and the lows just the numerous injuries along the way that he's had to overcome. He describes his own win in 2019 Kona as, as close to perfection and adds surprisingly that he's, that he's second to Javier Gomez back in 2010 at the Hamburg World Triathlon Series race as one of the biggest emotional surprises that he had in his career. This was just a, a simply tremendous chat with simply one of the greatest champions in the sport of triathlon and a very good friend. Some housekeeping before we go on. Please go to bennettendurance.com forward slash media for show notes, timestamps, links, and, and coupon codes. Please subscribe and share. You really help me out if you can do that for me. And finally, I truly appreciate all the feedback on my social platforms and iTunes, etc. Please keep it coming. It truly helps me out. Enjoy this one. Wow, I really did. Before we start, I've got to give a quick shout out to the brands that make this show possible. The only brands I'm working with are brands that provide products that I use daily and truly believe in. These products support my immunity, they help improve my recovery and my focus. First up, my friends at Athletic Greens. I love this company and I love their all-in-one daily drink. It's become a part of my morning routine. I'm heavily focused on supporting my immunity and boosting my energy and, and helping my gut health, but I want to do it naturally. And I found that support with Athletic Greens, a whole food sourced green drink that tastes great and there's no hassle. It's delivered straight to your door. And it's a highly absorbable powder that takes seconds to mix with water so there's no clumpiness to deal with. I can't believe a green drink sourced from whole foods can actually taste so good. Personally, I truly love it. It's developed from a complex blend of 75 vitamins and minerals. It's packed with aptogens for recovery, probiotics and digestive enzymes for gut health, and vitamin C and zinc citrate for immune support. So Athletic Greens is designed to help fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. And there's a great offer going on now for you to give it a try. Simply go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg to claim our special offer of 20 free tra daily travel packets with your first order. $79 added value. And get Athletic Greens delivered straight to your door. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. This show is also brought to you by my friends at Hyperice. Some of these products I've been using for almost a decade. Makers of the award-winning Hypervolt, the world's most powerful percussion massage device featuring quiet glide technology. Hyperice is a wellness tech company that makes devices designed to help you move better. From handheld massage devices to vibrating foam rollers, thermal technology, and the Normatec compression systems, Hyperice helps you warm up faster, recover quicker, and simply move better. Used in professional training rooms throughout the NBA, the NFL, MLB, the MLS, Ironman, and other professional organizations for well over a decade. Designed to help improve circulation, flexibility, and relieve tension. Get $50 off all percussion devices now, no code needed, and get an additional 10% off with code GREG10 at hyperice.com. That's hyperice.com, H-Y-P-E-R-I-C-E. Dot com and use code GREG10 for 10% off. And finally, I want to give a huge shout out to my mushroom buddies at Four Sigmatic and they're tremendous supporters of this show. An incredible wellness company that mixes shrooms and aptogens with coffee, cocoa latte, 
protein powder, and even edible skincare products. One of my staples is the mushroom coffee with lion's mane. And wow, I just love how much more productive and creative and and clear thinking I am. Plus, it includes chaga, which is the king of the mushrooms. Right now, chaga is my favorite functional mushroom. The compounds and antioxidant properties of chaga play a big role in supporting our immune system and maintaining its function. You're probably thinking, ah, does this coffee taste like mushrooms? And I can guarantee you it just tastes like regular coffee and not like mushrooms at all. Best of all, Four Sigmatic stands behind their products unconditionally with a 100% money-back guarantee. Love every sip or get your money back. And of course, we have a special offer for you as a Be With Champions listener. Receive 15% off your Four Sigmatic order. Just go to foursigmatic.com forward slash Greg or enter code Greg at checkout. That is F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash Greg to receive 15% off your order. All right, today I have a special guest, a great champion, a good friend, and an occasional training partner who I've known for well over 15 years. He's arguably the greatest triathlete of all time. He's, he's certainly a strong contender for this conversation. A few highlights include his Olympic gold medal in 2008. He's a three-time Ironman world champion with a course record in 2019 of seven hours and 51 minutes. A two-time Ironman 70.3 world champion with his win in 2018 as one of the greatest performance I think I've ever witnessed, probably only matched by his race win in Kona in 2019. A world record in the iron distance of seven hours and 35 minutes at the Challenge Roth event in Germany. And a list of wins that just keeps on piling up. But it hasn't always been smooth sailing. He's had incredible setbacks. But again and again, he rebuilds, refocuses, and gets himself back onto the top step of the podium. I'm delighted to have on the show a good friend, true gentleman, and a wonderful champion. Welcome, and thanks for joining me on Be With Champions, Jan Fredino. How hey, are you, mate? Where are you? Mate, I'm, uh, I'm in Girona, um, back home, where I've uh, kind of been stuck the last few months. And um, yeah, slowly hoping to be able to travel to a race, but uh, yeah, mm. happy, happy at home for the, for the moment. Mate, it's crazy, you know, I, doing homework for this episode and um, I was kind of reflecting back a little bit and I think we first met and, and maybe I'm wrong, but on the beach in Cancun after the World Cup down there and I think you were on the beach with your mum and we started chatting and I think you'd had a, we both had terrible days, I think. I think you had a DNF and I was like near dead last or something and and yeah, then just in you know, those days, your terrible day was like a podium. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. I think I actually looked day. it up. I think I was fifty fourth or something. Anyway, we we were both rubbish. But I remember thinking at the time, just what a great guy you were, and your mum was lovely. Um, but it wasn't soon after that. I remember you saying, "Oh, my mum thought you were before meeting me. I was an arrogant." arrogant prick i think i don't know if that was her words and i was like what <laughs> do you remember that it was an interview you gave after a hamburg world cup i think it must have been 2003 maybe um when you you know and, and mom didn't didn't see it at the time but you just spoke very confidently of your performance and um i i do remember it clearly because we did sit at i think it must have been dinner after the race and um, you and Laura were sitting opposite us and and it was just this delightful conversation that we had and mum was so surprised. <laughs> and it, <laughs> I don't know, it's uh, something that kicked things off in a good way, I think, from there. Yeah. And I, I think it's one of the, like you said, that Hamburg race, I think it was one of those race wins I had where 
I don't, I, it didn't, I think I came across in the interview going, that was surprisingly easy. Easy. Yeah. Wasn't, <laughs> easy and I didn't yeah. mean it in a, to put everybody else down, just my body had shown up. But anyway, I, exactly. You just I had remember. a great day and, 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 you know, it just, uh, yeah, it was, it was just an honest statement. That's, that's, that's hilarious. I, I want to jump right into, um, chat about the 2008 Olympics. Um, and I know you've done a plethora of other things since then, obviously, but what I couldn't believe doing homework for this show was that you'd been racing the ITU for quite a number of years and it had some success, some podiums and thereabouts, but the Olympic Games was your first ITU win. I think you'd won a German national title and a few other things along the way, but that was your first ITU win after 42 starts. I mean, yeah, it was the, f- the first race, yeah, definitely. To, uh, it was a long way until then and it was a long, long way um, well, as you would know, the, the you know from from third to second is a step, but then from second to first is is just a leap of having that confidence and and that belief, and um, yeah, it took me a long, long time to to actually believe that I could do it, and and luckily, it came it came just right at the right moment, you know. It was just- yeah, it was just the perfect day. Maybe I know you've probably relived it a, a million times and you've done talks on it. Would you be prepared to just step us through a little bit what was going through your mind through that race? Because in doing preparation for this, you know, I went and rewatched it again. Um, you know, nope. so many good mates that were in it and I still get goosebumps watching it. I even watched it without the sound, no commentators. And just, <laughs> I was just like, it was actually a fun way to watch it because you could really feel it. You could hear the breathing and everything about it. So it was a really good experience, but take me through, I mean, at least let's get, let's look at the run because it really was about the run that day. You'd had a, an exceptional swim again. I think you were 11th or 12th out of the water. The bike had sort of been well managed that, you know, a couple of guys had gone off the front, but only had sort of a 50 second lead or something. And, and then it was you guys on the run. And this was the first time that we really saw a young Alistair Brownlee kind of dictate the pace early and you all kind of were hanging on what was going through your mind in that sort of first 5k that first two laps of the run well yeah i mean it was uh, seeing alistair off the front and i was like who is this guy and what does he think he's doing like it, <laughs> little did i know he would come to dominate the sport for years and beyond you know it was sort of everybody else's last chance to get in but we didn't know that at the time <laughs> that, that last he was chance. <laughs> it, it really was it was the last race until he came on and just decided to thrash us for a few years and yeah. and you know at the time it was really more about you know, Rasmus Henning and, and, and Simon Whitfield. And of course, my good friend Daniel Unger was in that group. And, and, and learn, let's not forget about Javier Gomez, you know, who was, mm. who, who was there and, and all these big names. And, you know, it was the first dance at the Olympics. But I always realized, like, all I have to do is get it right on this one day. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, it, it's not about what happened yesterday or what's going to happen tomorrow. And that was the thing, the, the real decision in the race happened when Ivan Rana, who out of nowhere got into shape uh, a few weeks prior and won, won a World Cup in Kitzbühel. And he was sort of, you know, he, he hibernated for, for a while and from his earlier successes and then just came out and had this major form and attacked in lap two. So pretty much after Alistair was caught, he attacked on the hill that went took us back up to the dam. And I I just knew it was too hot and too humid to 
go with him straight away because there was a false flat along the dam where I was strangely confident that I would catch the guys because, I mean, you know, the, these were the, the biggest names of our sport at the time. And the crazy thing is that I did bridge up back to them. And then despite all the noise on the grandstand and besides the motorbikes and the choppers in the air, all I could hear was these guys breathing. It was the most surreal moment because it's funny you just mentioned it, and, and, you know, how you could feel yourself into the race. And that's literally all I heard was these guys breathing. And in that moment, I had a real confidence of, of actually being able to make it. And, um, you know, and then there were a few pace changes and, and, and Simon Whitfield got dropped off the back. And it, was, it became a bit of a waiting game on the last lap. Um, where there was Bevan and Javier and I'm trying to think. Yeah, no, it was, it was just, just, a, 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 just the three of you. And, and I think Simon yeah. was like 20 yards off the back, but yeah. Exactly. And then there was a big, big screen um, just before the finishing straight that was set there for the spectators. And I saw Simon toss his visor off to the side, you know, back in the day before you used to get a time penalty or disqualified for such a <laughs> rubbish infringement. Anyways, um, and I was so excited because I've been preparing for a sprint for so long uh, and, and so many training sessions and pretty much learned to sprint because I, I was horrible at it. But as you know, sprinting at the end of a 10K is very different to sprinting out, you know, out of the gates and gotten better at it and, and just focused my whole energy on the race coming down to a sprint. So when I saw Simon and, and he went with maybe five, 600 meters to go, I was just so happy that this final puzzle piece connected and, and, and that was it. That was the moment that was all that sort of, yeah. Um, all that it took for me to, to really make my dream come true. And that was almost the best moment of that whole race. Wasn't actually crossing the finish line, but that sprint and that the initiation of that sprint was just something that still gives me goosebumps to this day. It's funny you I love I love the the fact that it was so process orientated. Like I remember we were chatting a number of years back and I think I asked you, you know, had you done much sprint training or whatever? And you said, actually, yeah, I'd been really preparing the sprint, you know, believing that it could come down to the sprint and I wanted to make sure I have one. So it must have been kind of exciting when what you'd been focusing on in your training, both mentally and physically, suddenly was happening. And that old saying, whoever goes first loses in a sprint, it must have been kind of nice when when Simon went with such a with such a long way to go. For and for people that don't know, Simon Whitfield has one of the most dynamic explosive sprints in the world, and so does Bevan Doherty, um, who who you were with. Um, and yet you were able to sit with Simon, um, and I think almost just wear him down by being on his shoulder. And so you really just had that sort of final two hundred meters, three hundred meters where you could really just ignite. It was like you sat on him and then you just ignited and you didn't let up. It was like, did you think he was coming back or did you think anybody else was there? Because the determination on your on your face, that final 200 meters was absolutely incredible. I don't know if you've gone back and had a look at that, that footage, but it was like, do not turn around, do not let up. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I actually got a message from, uh, from a friend the night before, uh, an SMS message, and he said, 
whatever you do, don't look back. Because mm-hmm. every time until this stage, I'd done sprints with Daniel and, and Daniel had out sprinted me every single time. And it was mainly because I looked around whether I was safe and whether I could let up. And I just figured, you know, this is, this is not a time. Yeah, I, I was the young kid. I didn't have an arsenal of options. You know, I had one race plan. I had to commit to it because, of course, from where I was in terms of my racing, my performance, to get to where I wanted to be was a whole different level. And so that's why I needed that one race plan to come true. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when it did, I, I wasn't going to give up on it 200 meters mm-hmm. before to, to look up and, you know. Do you, do you think there was an element of, I mean, you're a fairly confident guy and we've seen that sort of since 08 Olympics with the way that you've carried yourself, um, that expectations because you hadn't sort of been the world champion leading in or Javier Gomez who'd been winning everything or Whitfield had, you know, had a gold medal and, and Bevan Doherty had had a silver medal. Was, was there a little bit of you were free um, to just to just see what happens? And um, did, did, did you feel expectation going into those Olympics or did you really feel like I can do whatever I want? No, I mean, expectation is something that you definitely put on yourself. I, I think, of course, you look at from the outside and, and the whole vibe in Team Germany was was pretty down because the Germans hadn't hadn't won anything, and of course we're traditionally a, a big Olympic nation, and you know that was definitely there. But I had definitely come there with the dream and and the hope of winning this race. Um, it was one of my mentors that taught me early that um, you know. Um, yeah, uh, in, in, uh, especially in Germany at the Olympics, um, the winner takes it all, and all the contracts and and all the bonuses and and even flying home. Um, if you don't have a gold medal, you're flying coach, and it was just <laughs> a, a way f- me of, of me to be able to bridge that gap and to to make it as such, you know, mm-hmm. and that's where I luckily didn't um not succumb to the pressure but didn't take the negative elements of the pressure but rather took them as an opportunity and and realized that this really is my one shot that i may maybe won't get one more time but also may never get again Mm. and that's that's amazing when you go into an event and go look this is it it's all or nothing. I got this one chance, and and it's like you said a bit earlier, um, the, the the sort of the next block, the next eight years became sort of the the Alistair Brownlee, Jonathan Brownlee, Javier Gomez era to some degree. Um, but I still think when we look back and the way you went on in two thousand and nine and two thousand and ten and all the way up to twenty twelve, I think you did an incredible job of. I, I think the Olympic Games ignited you onto the world stage, obviously, in the world of triathlon. But then I think you did a really good job to say, look, that wasn't a fluke and I'm not a one-hit wonder because I think you then went on to win a number of World Series races. 2010, 2010 is the year that we were training together even in Saarbrücken yeah. uh, in Germany. You were training incredibly hard. You were winning the World Series. Um, I think I'd come over there with Simon Whitfield maybe four weeks before uh, the grand final in Budapest. You'd won, was it Seoul or Yokohama that year? You'd have been on the podium nearly every time you'd raced. It was just an incredible year. 09 and 10 were incredible years in the way that you backed up after that Olympics. And then 2010 is the first kind of, 
what would we say? The grand final. It was the first time you kind of got a, a quite a, a, a nasty disappointment, I guess, um, in terms of you had to finish top four or five, I think, to win the World Series. Yeah. And wow. I think you had an injury. You had a niggle or you, you – I take me through that disappointment of not winning that World Series that day and, and how you were able to grow and develop to, to become a better athlete because of that experience. Well, it's quite funny you, you mentioned those as being good years because I look at them and I'm like, geez, they were terrible and I did a terrible job. But that's because I'm, I'm of course, applying my current standards to it and forgot that you actually have to grow as a person to get there. <laughs> um, but really, I was training so much out of fear and spite in those days of, of trying to prove exactly what you said, you know, that it's not a one-hit wonder and that there is more there. Um and, and there was very little enjoyment in the process as such. It was always about being hard and training more and, 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 mm. and, and being tough. And um, 2010 was really just the bill I got for, for my attitude towards, you know, the privilege of being an athlete and just, you know, really trying to punish myself through it. But I had no injuries. I had no niggle. Um, yeah, it was cold and I can't deal with the cold, but still that's, you know, I think I was 42nd or something in the end, or I don't even know what it, what it was. 41st. It was, I just looked it up. Oh, <laughs> there you go. One better than you thought. Stole myself a place. <laughs> um, and it was just, uh, in hindsight, and in all honesty, it was just uh, a mental thing, you know, which also was shown by the month that followed up to that. And it was always, I think my head gently and then less gently telling me that with the olympics my fire was actually no longer there it, it, it was it was a little bit done i was mm. um i remember you and i having a conversation about repeating and and what it's worth to repeat a performance and at the time at, at the time i was just like i know i should and i know a world title is the next thing that would be relevant on the Palmares, but it's actually I, I didn't allow myself to be like you know what this is this is no longer my journey my journey finished in Beijing and so I continued on and, and as you know in our sport it's impossible to go on this journey if you're not absolutely burning for it if you're not passionate about it if you're not mm. just to some degree loving it um and and that was definitely the price I had to pay over those next few years mm. of just I mean, denying myself that. I mean, you say they weren't good years, but uh, I mean, you, you were winning, you were on the podium, you were defending well. And um, I'll never forget, I think I was kind of on my way out from the ITU racing by that stage kind of thing. But I'll never forget, there's a little side story to that 2010 year. Do you remember High V, Des Moines, Iowa, it was the big you know, the big book up, the big <laughs> <I> forget. <laughs> and I turned up and I'd had this sinus infection that had been just going for months. I just, I couldn't get over it. And I'll never forget that the Olympic champion and a friend of mine, right after the briefing, ran up to your room and you, you found me some, I think you had some dried chili or something. <laughs> You're like, great, get this into you, get this into you. You'll be right by the weekend kind of thing. And I, that, no, I know something like that kind of stuck with me because there were very few us athletes can be fairly self-absorbed, as people would know. And I just remember sitting there going, and I said to Laura, 
that that's stuck with me for 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 a well really? till this day that that you were prepared to run up to your room and get me that dried chili just so I could try and get on the start line. Um, so that's that's what you can take away from 2010. You may not have got the world title, but you left a mark with me on that one. Yeah, it's funny because the one the thing I remember from that ride is uh, is is you, Laura, Emma, and myself going for a uh, for a ride around the town. And, um, you know, you were telling me about, um, yeah, just how great life is with Laura and being able to share the tour and all these kind of things. And at the time, Emma and I weren't together, but we were just sort of sitting at the back, kind of looking at each other. I was like, oh, yeah, maybe that's a great plan. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I do remember that bike ride going around the course and, and you guys weren't together, but I think there was like, oh, maybe that could be something. But, <laughs> mate, well, well, I had Javier Gomez on the show, well, months ago now, but... And we were talking about his world titles, and and he almost doesn't claim the 2010. He says he said that one was a little bit unfair. Jan didn't turn up on the day and play, so he he ended up winning. I think that that World Series title. But if you chat to Javi, I don't think he he truly owns that one. He feels like that was your year. Um, but, but how do you feel like that experience has maybe then affected you? If we step forward. Um, you know, you, you you went on to go to another Olympics where you did an incredibly good job at defending. I, I don't care what you say, but I think you did a great job defending and coming sixth. Um, but then you transitioned to long course. And how do you think that that 2010, do you think that helped you grow and develop as a person because of that race? Um, you know what? I was that thick-headed. I didn't get it even in 2010. Um, I was just <laughs> self-absorbed self and I felt sorry for myself and I – uh, put on a few kilos and just went to a really, really dark place um, and um, didn't see the lesson or didn't see the opportunity or didn't see anything valuable out of that. I just felt sorry for myself. And um, it, it took another blow, um, which was the one before the 2012 Olympics where I basically had a nerve injury that wasn't diagnosed for ages and I, I, I couldn't run. I was I – was, fit um doing all these things but i just i was just forever in pain every time i ran and it was just a, a nerve that flared up and that was the key to my long course career and actually realizing like it's not worth carrying on um even though i haven't studied anything i haven't really got any other options here um but if if things just become miserable then it, it's not worth going on. And it also made me realize how much I love the sport and how much I love being able to go out for a run. Um, and it, it's a cr incredible how it oftentimes takes something that's taken away from you in order to then realize how, how good it is. And that's what that injury did for me and, and really being sidelined for six months and then coming back and in six weeks of running, trying to get as fit as you can for, for an Olympic Games. Um, so that was indeed actually a, a, a race I was very happy with and, and a race that I was happy to end my Olympic career with, um, mm. not because of the placing, which was a sixth place, but because of the fight that I put up and mm. having given all for that race. And, and that was for me a clear sign that, you know, it, it's time to move on and, and, and look for another journey and find another adventure and, and, you know, um, do it for the love of the sport again and not for federations and, and, and all the other things that flow along with the Olympic distance. I, I couldn't agree more with all of that. I, I think one of the things that, you know, 
the reason I think I was able to have a reasonably long career was simply because I was just passionate about the sport. I was I was passionate about the hard training. I like to somewhat punish myself, oh, probably man, to my detriment at times. But bury but, yourself nonstop. You know, but and and look, I'm not encouraging anybody to do that. I was wrong, and and I was overtrained most of my career. But I was very passionate about it. But I but I loved the racing. I loved the the atmosphere and, and the test. I enjoyed putting myself on start lines, and that passion is what kept me alive throughout my career with those injuries and illnesses that that come when you do overstep that very fine line of, of, of overdoing it. But, um, you know, so I get it entirely where you're coming from. But then your transition from, you know, the Olympic short course racing to long course racing was, was it looks fairly seamless. And what I'm noticing with the way that you did it compared to sort of a, Javier Gomez or an Alistair Brownlee, they keep kind of dipping their toes into the long course stuff and then coming back uh, to short course. You said, right, cut ties, let's go all in and figure out how I can do this long course. And what was scary is I I kind of felt like the long course, and especially if you look at your resume, almost suited you more than the short course, even though you had an exceptional short course career. Would you agree? Um. You, you know what, I think the, the one thing that why we always connected really well is because I have that same sort of attitude towards training, you know, trying to find the limit and, and the limit is often through large volumes and high intensity, exactly like you, you know. Mm. And and I think it really was lucky in a sense for me that it, it took me those four years and a couple of those years were definitely, you know, especially 2011 and, and early 2012, without any uh, mentionable success. And, you know, it just made me realize that without being bitter about the sport, um, I, I need to move on. And, and if you allow me, I think that's also one of the things that made your career so long and, 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 and successful is that you – did various kinds of racing, you know, moving to the US and doing the non-drafting scenes and, and being hugely successful and, you know, with the Des Moines and, 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 and the series over in the US. Um, we never had that. For us, it was ITU or nothing. Mm. And we actually weren't allowed by the Federation to even do any racing in the US. And that was kind of my luck that I was so fed up with the with the kind of racing that we were doing and you know for a while there every itu world cup was or, or world championship series race was almost snowing uh, in the middle of summer <laughs> wherever we went and it was just at a point that i was well and truly saturated and that's why i was like no this is not working i really need to commit and find a new adventure and and the greatest thing i had at the time was a curiosity and also a, a, to, a, to a degree a doubt whether I could actually finish an Ironman. Because you look at a lot, a lot of the guys in the history, you look at Simon Lessing, you know, he could, he could never do it. He was the greatest guy in a short distance but never really trans, translated his performance in, 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 in long-distance racing. And, and there are various other examples that really left me wondering and that fueled my hunger to be like, okay, I got to put in the work as though I was a rookie and just coming in and just felt like being that young gun again. You know, it felt like being fresh and building your own team and everybody who's on your team is invested in your interest and 
it really was a hugely exciting time and, and actually continues to be. Mm. It's funny you you mention all of that. And when I had you know your wife Emma on the show, you know probably a month or so ago now, and and we were discussing you um, on the chat, and she oh, she was. God. Well, no, no. <laughs> yeah, there were some funny bits in it. But no, this is the serious part in, in the sense that she'd been on her own sort of in full control of her career for many, many years. In, in fact, even when she won the 2008 Olympic Games, she'd told Triathlon Australia, look, I need to do it my way and you just need yeah. to back, back me, right? There was no federation almost for her. She was racing in the US. She was winning big prize money races, you know, non-drafting. She was doing drafting, but she said, let me do it my way and 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 I'll put the pressure on myself. It's on me. And she built. She was used to building a team around her. She'd used to being working on her own. And she was sort of saying when we when we spoke that you'd come from a federation that, like you said, that had a fairly big control over their athletes. And here you were stepping out on your own. And but then together, you were able to sort of create your own team. I know your manager Felix has just been with you by your side now for gosh, forever, 15 years or so, um, yeah. and, and you've created this amazing team around you that made that transition probably smoother than it is, like you said, maybe the Simon Lessings of the world didn't have that team. I don't know, but the way you did it, you took your training from short course, which always seemed to me like you were doing a lot. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you're just doing a it's lot of work. how you look at someone else doing the same thing as you and you're like, man, that guy's doing way too much. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, isn't it? I remember us all in, 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 in Germany together and Whitfield would be doing his thing, I'd be doing mine and you'd yeah. be doing yours. And, and we're all competitive, but we're all friends, you know, and it was kind of like, but we're all trying to one-up each other. And I think we all went terrible come Budapest. But anyway, I think that, maybe that was our downfall that year. But yeah. I mean, you, you did transition well over. It looks to me when I look at the way you transitioned in 2014 that you said, I'm going to, this is going to be a journey. Don't go for too much too soon. Is that what it was like? I mean, you got third at the European Ironman Champs, third at the Kona Ironman Champs. Although I think, didn't Kona that year you have a puncture or two as well? I think in 2014. I had three in Frankfurt and I had, I had one in Kona um, thanks to some super fast tires I was running and, <laughs> and some mega special lube I got at eight. PM the night before the race from good old Conrad Stoltz um, who was hanging out and I managed to put that lube on my chain in the morning. I was just so nervous and so clueless. Um, but that's the beauty of it. You know, you go in and you just, you're just a rookie again and you have to make these decisions and you wonder. And I, I'm a big fan of self-doubt in the, in, in the relating to performance, okay? So you believe in yourself and backing yourself to be able to do something. But there is always a doubt whether you've done enough and what more can be done. And I think that doubt is what continues to fuel me now to just never be, to never feel safe with, with what I've done. And it, it keeps me running. It's almost like that hamster that keeps running on the, on the treadmill just to keep, <laughs> to keep ticking over and keep trying to find the solution and, and the best possible way. And the only problem with that is that I decided to go to trust my coach 100% who hadn't coached any Ironman before. And I d deliberately said, we're not looking at what anybody else is doing. Um, I want to go away from the ITU style where you kind of know, okay, Alistair's running 2910. Uh, if you want to win, you have to run 2910. Whether your body is able to ever even run 29.10 or not is regardless. It's just how your training is adapted to the goal someone else sets, right? Mm. 
Whereas here it was the other way. We just tried to get into as good a shape as possible. And um, yeah, it just was an entirely different process. Mm, I love that. I had Katie Zafiris on last week and and Katie, the 29, not 2019 world champion. And and we were talking about how fear or, or doubt, as you put it, and how it kind of, if you can use it as a fuel rather than freeze you, I think, you know, sometimes fear can be like a, it can crush you, <laughs> but if you can use it as a fuel to not become complacent, it's amazing how it can kind of energize you to, to become better, to find more out of yourself than you, than you ever thought you had. I, I think that's fantastic the, that you were able to do that. And, and then you backed up 2014 incredibly well still. I mean, you know, you were second to Javier Gomez at the, at the 70.3 Worlds. It was, it was a very successful transitional year, I, I would say. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, you know, especially in hindsight, it was all all you could dream for. Of course, when you're there and then you always want more, but that's that's the nature of, of an athlete, I think, is that you always want more and you want everybody to be at the start line and you want to try and beat them all and, and, and <laughs> you, know, you just can't have it all at the same time. But then you did start to have it all. I mean, at the end of the day, you got very greedy in 20, very greedy indeed, uh, really from 2015 onwards to some degree. I mean, we've had a, a few setbacks in, in, in sort of um, along the way, but honestly, mate, 2015, you just crushed every, were you undefeated 2015 and 2016? I don't think you, anybody even came close to you in half of those races. Um, you know, you went on to win Ironman European champs, backed it up with your first Kona Ironman world title, which if you're in long courses, basically, unless you win in Kona, you're a nothing. So it was which kind I of- realized in 2017, ironically, I, I was undefeated in 2017 as well, but uh, no, 2018 actually. Um, yeah. But, I never. 2018 yeah. was hilarious, mate, because I remember putting on Twitter after that 70.3 world title win that you had that, you know, I'd been in the sport for 30 years. And honestly, I think that race of yours, and I've told you this to you, so I'm not blowing smoke up your butt anymore, but basically I think it was one of the greatest performances I think I've ever seen in triathlon. Um, but it's all forgotten because you didn't start Kona. You know, it's like, hang on, 2017 wasn't a complete disaster. You know, you, you've outrun you know, two of the other greatest uh, triathletes of all time in, in Javier Gomez and Alistair Brownlee, you had a dominating swim and a dominating bike, dominating run that year with a 106 half marathon. Just let that sounds carbon. In, sounds carbon and all. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, no carbon shoes, nothing special <laughs> about it. Actually, it was, it was pissing down rain too, I think. It was a wet road. You know, I think in all that was, I still, I know Kona, we're going to talk about Kona 2019 probably for the ages, but I still, I loved that 2018 race that you put together and, you know, it was unfortunate that you, you know, you, 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 you fractured your sacrum, I think on the flight to Australia or, or something happened there. What was that like that going from an extreme high? Cause you're obviously elated, you know, South Africa being a second home to you, winning a world title in front of the very, very best five, six weeks out from Kona, uh, Going for a three-peat, you'd won in 2015, 2016. Tell me about how you reacted to that disappointment um, in, in 2017. Well, well, that, that was 2018. So 2017 oh, was the yes. year where, where I, um, where I um, ended up walking the marathon. That's right. Um, That's right. Um, so that was a, a little a thing in between. But you know what? What I'd learned by then, and that really surprised me, is 
like I, I was I was down when I got the note and, um, um, from um, from the doctors, you know, and that said basically the scan that you have a stress fracture and I'm out. There's no way we can do anything. We could try a little bit of aqua jogging, this and that, but you really know with a stress fracture and a, and a serious one, there's, there's no way you're going to run and you don't want to put yourself out there. And you, you know how you get so down and so disappointed on something? It, it just didn't happen. Um, I have to say that 2018, that South African race was probably the most fun experience as a whole you know coming back to the origins where it all started um exactly in that town of port elizabeth where the african champs took place in 2000 and you know we we went we drove up from cape town in a bus and it just broke brought back so many memories and and, and racing on that home soil um was was so so magic that even not being able to race in kona didn't get me crashing down and burning. You know, I wasn't like, okay, the world is coming to an end. I really realized that, you know, one, one day it is going to be over and one day you are not going to be an athlete anymore. And if this is the last time you raced, well, then, shit, it was, it was, a, it was a bloody good time, you know. <laughs> so there was everything there and, and more. And um, it was strangely a time that I was actually able to appreciate until I went to Kona that year. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, I decided to go there for like sponsors and, and appearances and, and TV and all those kind of things. And, and that too was probably another key moment that made 2019 happen is seeing Patrick go there and break the eight hours and having to stand on the sidelines and watch him. And it was just heartbreaking not being there. You know, it really, it, it was, yeah, it, it was a tough race to watch and really made me realize that I'm not ready to be in that role and to, to sit there and that I definitely got more hunger in me. Hmm. And, um, yeah. So it was almost like a, it was awful, but it was necessary. You know, it was like that, that, that fire. It just kind of went, hang on. I didn't like watching that. <laughs> I, I need to. Absolutely. I, yeah. And yeah. after 2016, I'd, I'd gotten a little bit, you know, I'd gotten a little bit. 2016 was was a year that, without sounding, how do I say this, <laughs> without sounding too cocky, is that I felt I got lucky. I just felt I got lucky in the race and that my preparation hadn't been where it should have been and I had a lot of distractions and and just a lot of noise that I wasn't able to block out and that my training had suffered because of it. And that's why I still hadn't translated the race that, that I really wanted to. Mm. And, you know, all those things were bundled together in, in that moment of watching in, in, in 2018. Whereas if, if it would have all gone to plan and it would have all come together, I would have probably retired um, mm. there or the year before. Isn't it funny? We, we we search for the perfect race, and that doesn't just mean winning. It means winning no. in a certain way. Isn't it funny? And even how many how many victories are you happy with in your life? <laughs> exactly. How many well, of them? You know what, though, it's funny. Even sometimes I've actually finished. I remember finishing second to Simon Whitfield way back in Minnesota. You know, Minneapolis was the big sort of six figure money race, and yep. but I put together a fantastic day. I got beaten by a better man. But I remember being elated with my performance. And it's funny, 
sometimes those races where you don't win still leave a mark on you and go, that was a pretty epic performance. Obviously, I've got more work to do if I'm going to beat Simon or beat whoever, but it was still funny, you know. And and for you, I think looking at that 2016, like you said, 2016 was a pretty massive year for you with that um, – you, you broke the world record in Roth. Um, I think that was 2016, correct? Seven hours, 35 minutes, which is just ex- incredible. So you've gone, you know, home soil, Germany, and punched out an amazing race. Then you've gone to Kona and led the German sweep, you know, which I don't know how, how many times. I think there's been another German sweep back in when Hilriger won back in the mid-90s. Um, right. But other than that, Countries don't lead sweeps, uh, but you went Jan Frodeno, Sebastian Kinley, Patrick Langer on the podium in 2016. Looking at that race in 2016, the way that you and Sebastian had a great head-to-head battle along early he drive for the first 10 to 12K, it was an exceptional race to watch. Was there ever a point that you thought, how am I going to get rid of this guy? Well, you know, with with Sebi, you know, in an Ironman, anyways, before before he changed coaches, that he always goes out quick. He always goes out quicker than than what he finishes. It's just the way he races because he's a purebred racer. He wants to actually race an Ironman. He doesn't want to sit there and tactically wait, which you know a lot of people do, and and sometimes get rewarded for and, and and sometimes not but that was really the thing that i was hoping that he was just going out too quick because other than the aid stations you know i, I was really yeah I, I was really wondering how long we're gonna go with this for and you kind of think how cool it sounds you know this iron war between uh, you know uh, scott and alan and you're like that sounds great i want to be in one of those but when you're in one of those holy <laughs> shit did you not want to be in one of those <laughs> <laughs> it's awful, right? And um, and you know it was it was really really cool, but I was not entirely unhappy when it um, it, it went up Ali He Drive and uh, um, yeah Sebastian started dropping off a little bit. I love that. I think that's great. I love the image of Mark and Dave, and I want that with like a mile to go. But actually, no, I really don't. <laughs> just can I win this comfortably? Can everybody just settle into their places and give me exactly. the win, please? Can we just actually end this at 35Ks? Because yeah. the last 7Ks are just, you know, it really just, hurts. They hurt a lot, yeah. I remember listening to a, a young uh, Australian triathlete years ago, Emma Moffat. So a good friend oh, yeah, of Emma's, yeah. and she was talking about. I think she won the High V World Cup, and so, and she, I was talking to her after the race, and she was just like, "Could everybody just stop chasing each other and just relax into their positions and stop being greedy?" And I was like, just yeah. laughed at that. It's like, <laughs> can we all just cement our results early and then just go for a jog? But anyway, uh, mate, then let's just skip right forward because you know. 2019, what I loved was, I, I don't know where I heard it, but you did an interview and and you said, I wrote a letter of intent to my coach and to my manager and um, and I just loved that. And I think, you know, both Laura and I often talk about the difference between sort of good and great is intention. It's that, it's that trigger that often when we go all in on something, that everything matters. Um, tell me about that letter and that, that purpose of, of 2019. So that letter of intent was uh, a slightly booze-fueled 2018 Kona after the race sitting <laughs> in the apartment with my coach and Felix. 
and you know we were sitting there drinking our longboards and and um, you know reflecting about the days and and what had gone and what had happened and um, I'm trying to think but a couple of Dan's athletes didn't go too well either and it was just one of those moments that needed an an upheaval and and, and Felix got out a piece of paper and he started scribbling something down and he's like all right I want everybody to be in on this I want to be a hundred percent and um, I looked at Dan's face and Dan had this reluctance, you know, cause he's a scientist and he's, he, he's the guy who gives you the quote three years after you've read it. You know, he's a great coach. He's a great person, but he's not the number one motivator in terms of like finding, you know, the, the stuff that's, that's out there. And, um, you know, he had his doubts and I could see it in his face, whether we'd come back from this injury and whether we'd be running as well anymore and, and whether my hip would ever hold up again. And, um, that's, you know, and that little bit of spite was all I needed because it wasn't really intended spite, but you know how you make things up and you're like, yep, I'm going to show you. And that's where we all signed this letter of intent to put in heart and soul into a season of 2019 and to be back on that start line a year later as, as fit as can be. And, um, yeah, we actually, um, had that going a few times during the day where it's just it was really that day that was needed to give 365 days of energy towards uh you know a, a lifetime goal and dream which was the perfect race in Kona mm. did you keep that letter have you still got it yep still got it Felix got it out the the year after and um yeah we've we've still got it so there really is something positive to having a few drinks after a race, then, isn't there? You know, you got it. You got it. I'm, I'm, I'm not one to advertise, you know, booze fueled nights, but every now and then you just, yeah, got to let no, go a little bit. Mate, you're not a big drinker. I've tried to have a few, few extra beers with you, but you, you tend mate, to. You're be... an Aussie. You're an Aussie. Forget. <laughs> you're never going to go head to head with you. You're a German. That doesn't count. They equal each other out. Just a quick mini break before we get back to the show. I just want to remind you guys to go check out athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Sign up and get your free 20 daily travel packets with your first order of $79 added value. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. You mind having a quick run through 2019 and, and the Ironman world title? Um, you know, I've had Timothy O'Donnell, good friend of both of ours on the show, came second to you. Um, describes it probably one of the greatest races of his life. Um, he broke eight hours himself, but he said, look, I think I was racing the greatest of all time who had the greatest day of his life. Um, and he says, look, in fairness, I have to be somewhat pleased with my result. Um, do you, would you agree with that? Would you agree with at least the greatest day of, even if you don't want to say the greatest of all time, but the greatest day of your life, was it that kind of a performance? Yeah, it was definitely that. That it was an altogether bizarre experience that I've never ever had uh, in a, in a race afterwards, and it was uh, actually yeah, um, Pete Jacobs. I mean, the guy we we've trained with, and a friend of ours from Noosa, who we've you know butted heads with many many times over his attitude and his his his. Uh, yeah, his food frenzies and, and, and all the things he, he looks for, you know, that are somewhat just very contrary to what, what you and I do. But he 
put out something about appreciating the moment. You know how you are. Like, what are you talking about? Appreciate the moment. <laughs> but I was literally running along in that marathon and, and, and even on the bike, I, like in Hawaii, feeling good is, is a rare commodity. And, and I felt good for, for large parts of that day. And it really made me realize that, you know, this is it. This is exactly what I've been looking for. This is what I've been dreaming of. And, and I actually have to appreciate this because, you know, you, you it's, it's only a finite amount of time. It's, it's only, you know, almost eight hours and, and then it's going to be over. And then your fitness goes down and you don't know what's going to be. But mm. just being in that moment was th- the presence of it is something that I haven't ever experienced before. Mm. And, and having the legs to go when I wanted to and having the ability to hold on uh, to a certain pace and, you know, the ability to talk yourself uh, out of overheating um, all those kinds of things, just, um, yeah, things that I've never really achieved before. I think most of the listeners have probably seen it or aware of your, your, you know, your race, but just quickly for those that haven't, it was an extraordinary race in the sense that it was probably the first time in many, many, many years that a little swim group actually got away and stayed away on the bike. We, we, we keep seeing the, the groups come through and the Uber bikers, but yourself, Alistair Brownlee, Timothy O'Donnell, um, Josh Amberger, um, oh, there's a, another European athlete with you guys on the way up to Harvey, but you all look like you worked. Um, Maurice Clavel. I'm sorry. Yes, Maurice yeah. Clavel. Thank you. And oh, well, it looked like you were doing a fair shunt of the work, to be honest. But and then it looked like on the way back, Timothy O'Donnell did a fair bit. You know, on the way back down from Harvey, Alistair Brownlee, I think, had a change of wheels and 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 maybe toasted himself a little bit trying to catch back up to you guys. But it was at that. Was it a a definite attempt to get away from them all? At that, was it about forty kilometers to go? You kind of just. You just ignited. It was like suddenly you were back to Olympic distance triathlon, and I don't know what you did that last forty k in, but the rest of the field were just left. Um, was that in your race plan? Had you trained for that specifically, or you just felt good? No, well, I hadn't, hadn't trained for that specifically. I dreamed of it. I've all, I've always believed that having the perfect race in a triathlon, you need to make a mark on the bike at least uh, in 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 Kona. And that, you know, it's not enough to just out, to, to just wait until everybody else pops. And, um, and, and most of that happens obviously on the marathon. So I really felt that I had good legs. I, I know my strength in the last hour of the bike generally, because that's where I, you know, the good old diesel kicks in. Um, but I'd seen on the surges that one by one, the guys got tired and all of a sudden it was just Tio and, and, and L and I, and, um, you know, then, then Tio did come through and, and do a turn. And I just realized that I could do more. Like I felt mm-hmm. good, but I could definitely do more. And so it was the bizarrest place for me was on the uphill, um, coming out of uh, or, or coming back on the on the queen k um that i actually managed to hold my power higher than than what i normally would and and realized that to had dropped off um but alistair was still there and then i waited for the next aid station made sure i got in my fluids and then uh yeah just really put my head down try to get as aero as possible 
and and put in the watts that I still had left. I mean, in terms of pure numbers, um, it probably wasn't <laughs> wasn't fantastic, but you know, it never is <laughs> after 150k in Kona. Um, so it was just you know the commitment and the the fun of being able to commit that was that was the greatest thing where you kind of you know you often you have a plan to to ride and then you're like oh should i be doing this should i not be doing this but just the actual joy of racing that you spoke about earlier coming out in a race and and really just being happy to give it all regardless of who's sitting in a bunch and getting dragged up the road by you know the uber bikers sitting in the second pack Mm. um and of course feeling a little bit of urgency because you know there are some some good guys sitting there and strong runners sitting there who haven't seen the front yet. <laughs> mm. um, and, and of course that is a little something that plays in. So it was a, a, an interesting dynamic, but a real, actually a real freeness to race. The freeness that you t- spoke about, spoke about earlier in the Olympics was probably in that moment more than ever, where I was just like, I don't care what happens. I'm just going to go here and um, Yeah. Isn't that fun to be able to make that happen on the, on the day? <laughs> were, were you were you? Um, I know you respected, and, and so you should have. Um, Alistair Brownlee was still with you, kind of at that point. Where had you started to see glimpses that maybe he's fatiguing, or did you kind of go? It'd be nice to have a minute or two lead on the on the you know double Olympic gold medalist. <laughs> what was the kind of mindset with him? Well, I hadn't seen him um, oh. since since we'd gotten onto the Queen K. Um, it was Maurice Clavel who was doing a bit of work until we got, you know, sort of to the bottom of Harvey. Then I rode up to Harvey, and then it was To. And then I only saw him because he dropped off and, and and rode back on, but he hadn't seen the front. And of course, there was a little thing of, you know, is this guy just playing games and and, and waiting it out? Um, but we had a little altercation um, going up uh, uh, going up one of the hills where I just sort of. Um, how do I put this? Encouraged him to come past and take a lead. <laughs> <laughs> hey, trust me, we've all been abused by Alistair Brownlee in a World Series race before. So maybe Absolutely. maybe he needed something back for once. He's always like, come through, and we're all exhausted. We're like, dude, I can't. He's never ever said come through. You know exactly what he says, and it's not come through. It's no. not nearly as nice as that. <laughs> I remember getting abused by him in Kitzbühel. I'm like, screw you, buddy. I'm exhausted. <laughs> If you feel good, you keep going. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's brilliant. Along those lines. I, I love uh, so that's I where I saw the armor cracking a bit, anyways. Yeah, okay, yeah. So you did get a little bit of a glimpse there. And um, but there was one funny moment, I think, when I chatted with, with Timothy O'Donnell, and he said, Look, there's three gold medals in this little group of three, and I don't have any of them. <laughs> and they're all He's like, he kind of felt like, hmm, do I belong up here? <laughs> that was fantastic when he when he kind of quoted that, and and then you got off the bike. You now had a several minute lead. You you hear the crowd. Was the time even a thing? I mean, you know, I think it was like five hours, five minutes, or something. Um, you know, basically, if you run a was that a two fifty or whatever? No, just under two forty five marathon. You could break the course record or if you break a 248 or whatever 252 whatever it is did that all go through your head course records or was it just like focus on the process no i was definitely focusing on the process i remember you you and i we still had a swapped a few messages before the race and you 
You mentioned something about T.O. and not being in the best running shape and he'll be <laughs> someone to go with on the bike. And I just, I mean, I know you guys are best buddies. And I'm like, oh, man, he's up to something. He's up to something. Watch out for T.O. Anyways, he came <laughs> to the very top of my list at that very moment when you said don't watch out for him. And, um, and um, you know, I, I was still very aware that I took a long time in T2 purposely um, to cool down. And, and you know, it, it was not a long way um, behind that the guys were. Um, and... And it really only crept into my mind that somebody said, all you have to do is run at, I don't know, 2.45 for the record. Um, only. And around <laughs> kilometer only. 12. And then I'm like, I haven't done that before. <laughs> <laughs> I also haven't ridden off the front by myself. I'm not sure it's a great combination, you know, to have this, um, to have that in my, to have that in the back of my head. And of course, you start doing the maths and what you need to run and um, what, I'd been training for in, in, in preparation for the race and what I thought I could do. And, of course, that's when the maths really started to come in. But, again, I, I just always try to come back to the process and enjoy the, the moment as much as you can um, and, and really be, be there and then and, and involved in not making mistakes, taking up the right nutrition, you know, just putting one foot in front of the other. Mm. In fairness, um, so – I was chatting to yourself. I chatted to Sebastian Kinley and Timothy O'Donnell all before the race. I was I was doing some work for NBC as an analyst, um, and it was actually the catalyst for starting this show. I enjoyed the conversation so much with you all that I'm like, these are such good mates with such great insights that I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. So why not do a podcast and chat to them all? Anyway, Tio had put out a several weeks previous. He's he's doing a he was doing some water running. And he put it on Instagram, water running. Don't worry, everybody, just doing water running. I'm like, eh, nobody does water running because they really want to. So I write back, I'm worried, buddy. And then uh, I think, you know, a week or so before, you know, we chatted and he said, yeah, I've been water running on the Ultra G treadmill and blah, 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 blah. And and I said to him, well, are you just, are you, I guess you're just going to go for it on the swim and bike and see what happens. He said, yeah. You know, and, and so that's what I told you. I had no idea that T.O., that Ultra G Whatever. running and water running. Sat around no, no, no. Expensive I'm... bottle of wine and just <laughs> backed out a plan, sitting <laughs> in a little place in Boulder and oh, just yeah. working it out. This, this is what it is, yeah. Greg, can you tell Jan that I'm really crap <laughs> and then I'm going to come around and outrun him? Not at all. <laughs> it, it was very much a... He he told me, and I just told him, just go for it, and uh, and, he, and he did. And he ended up having his best marathon time and out, outrunning his wife, Rini finally for the fastest in the household. I think he ran a two forty nine or something. But and he came second. And he, like I said earlier, he was delighted with that. But but then you went on to have an exceptional run. Um, when Dave Scott was on my show, a number uh, you know several months ago, he said you know the guys aren't running what they should be running, and 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 yeah, <laughs> and, 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 and Jan Fadino is not running what he's capable of. But I'm like, I kind of look back at that conversation. I'm going, well, Jan Fadino is running enough to win the races. You know, like you've been in the lead comfortably by the half marathon stage every time you've you've won. It gets to the point of you running a sub 240 becomes why? Now, if somebody was with you shoulder to shoulder, do you think there's room there that you could, if you were Mark and Dave, 89, Iron War with somebody, do you think you have several minutes more to give for that marathon if you wanted to? I, I honestly don't know, it, it, and, and I'm, I'm very curious about it because I, I do um, 
Yeah, I, I, I do actually wonder. But mm, thinking about 2018 and that race in PE, you know, I would have never, ever run that fast um, if it wasn't for running um, with Javier and, and, and Alistair, you know. And, and that's really what sport has become all about for me is those rivalries and, and finding out whether it is possible, you know. It's easy to say you're not running to your full potential. Um, when at the end of the day, you know, you feel like you've given everything, but as we all know, it much is about perceived exertion and, and, and in the end, well, just going to have to wait and see what's possible. You, you look pretty tired when you finished last year. <laughs> <laughs> when you cross the line and you, you kind of just sit down and give me more water, would you? And I just said, oh. Mike Riley, you can wait, buddy. I need some time just to sit. I'm exhausted. So, you know, you, you mentioned rivals. Who, who would you put at the top of your list of the most, I don't know, fun rival is the words I'm trying to look for, but who have been the greatest rivals and, and some of the battles that you've enjoyed is, you know, when we've talked, Alistair Brownlee, Gomez, Sebi, Patrick Lange. I mean, is, is that the list? Is there anybody else that you would throw in there and go, I've really well, Definitely not all of those guys are on that list. Um, uh, three at best make that list. Okay. Um, who are the but- three at best? You're going to have to tell me that now. I'm well, going to remove. Know, you, I'm going to remove Patrick Langer. <laughs> you go, and you're left with three. Um, it's it's just something that hasn't been 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 going. You know, we've never had a rivalry. We've never actually been able to race. We've never never been in the same never been in the same race as this guy. No. Um, and um, and of course, I, I think it's probably the most common answer you'll get from anybody. But the the greatest guy in triathlon I've raced is Javier, hands down. You know, he's He's a gentleman. You can have fun with him. He's an animal um, in in all three disciplines. Somebody who's been consistent over so many years and, and so many disciplines, and and he's an honest and, and true competitor. And, and that's you know all you can all you can ever wish for. You know he, he enriches any start list he's ever on, and um, you know um, and is a genuinely nice guy. Um, Couldn't agree more. That's I, just the way. <laughs> so short I remember we were talking when I had him on the show, and I, I kind of said to him, um, "You know, he turned up to Noosa Aquatic Centre where you've trained a bunch in Australia, and and I think it was 2007. I'd never met the guy, but I'd heard about this young Spaniard, and and I think I was doing reasonably well on the US circuit, so I was like, you know, f- pretty full of myself, I guess, at the time. And I'm like, oh, here's that Spanish kid, you know, and had already built up this dislike <laughs> of the guy. I hadn't met him. <laughs> we both finished our workouts. I think he was swimming a few, you know, different lane or whatever. And he came over and he said, Oh, hi, Greg. I'm a huge fan. Really lovely to meet you. And I felt like such a dick. I was like, <laughs> and ever since we've been good mates, we've lived together, trained together, and ever since. But we often laugh about that first interaction and just how, as athletes, we almost build up this this shield of the new brigade coming through and you know we don't want to like them and then and he shattered that when when he came over and said good day so just like you said I, I second everything you're saying i just think one of the most lovely people you could ever meet and i don't know if anybody's won more races than that guy he just keeps keeps turning up and winning you know yeah absolutely and i, I really hope he he does get that um elusive shot at at, at tokyo you know i really do hope that oh. uh he does well, the athletes in general are granted the, the chance to go again in 2021. But uh, yeah, I think every time that guy's racing and I'm not, he's got all my my fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not. I like that. I also think Alistair Brownlee has uh, matured 
um, incredibly over the last sort of 12, 15 years. Um, That's because you're not racing anymore. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, just kidding. He, he, he's some, someone who we all have to thank for just raising the level and raising the level of competitiveness and, and you know, um, where it's all gone. I think he's, um, you know, he, he was somebody that's definitely made me a, a much better athlete. It took me a long time, but it's, uh, yeah, he's definitely... <laughs> We gave you a bit, a bit of a shoulder barge at the end of the. You're doing an interview at the end of the last year's <laughs> Ironman. <laughs> you're like, screw you, buddy. No, it was. I, I, I think. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, I could see it in your face. <laughs> it was like, I actually you. said it. It was just in German. <laughs> oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, on live well, TV. <laughs> well, I think between yourself, uh, Alistair Brownlee, Javier Gomez, and throw Mark Allen in there. You know, Chris McCormack and I were talking about. We, we, we put you four in the, the strong arguments of the greatest of all time um, triathletes. And we can, there's no right or wrong answer to that to some degree. I think it's just a fun discussion. Sometimes it gets heated when people get very passionate about who's their fa- favorite. Um, I did have you squeezing in front of Mark Allen for the number one spot, but um, <laughs> but that I might change my opinion after this. I'm not sure yet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, it's, it's such a relative thing. And, and as you say, it's, it's a fun debate, but you really – struggle to compare you know across across generations and which races were valued and the world series and all these kinds of things um so it's yeah what's incredible about your career though is like you won the olympics on the day after your 27th birthday so really that's when your career started in my mind you might have 50 or 100 races even before that but you ignited the world stage on that day and what you've done in this the 12 years since well we can't include 2020 that's not fair the, the 11 years <laughs> since was really really quite remarkable um if, if we wound the clock back and think about when you first started the sport um could you imagine that you would be now in the discussion of the greatest of all time i mean what, were you a confident kid did you believe this journey was possible um you know what? I, I I still hope that I don't wake up and somebody just tells me, "Oh, geez, all right, go back to work. You've got a nine to five. <laughs> and all this was just a it was just a dream. Um, and you know what? I I don't recall myself like that. And then recently, somebody told me that in two thousand and one, I told him that I needed to go to Germany so that I could get the funding and the support so that one day I could be a world champion. I'm like, no ways. Did I say that? That is. That is so embarrassing, but I guess, um, um, I, you know, without being, without being arrogant, I think I always was a big dreamer and I always thought, you know, why not? Mm. And I think that's really the thing that's, you know, that, that's been my luck that I kind of always thought, well, yes, that there is a chance and if you don't go, you won't know. What I like about you is, is I think we've had some incredible raw talent come into the sport. And what I mean by that is just the Alistair Brownlee, Javier Gomez, that just are just exceptional. At, at 20 years of age, you know, Javier's winning the under-23 world champs. At the same, similar kind of age, you know, Alistair Brownlee's winning world titles and, and running off the front for at least 5K at the Olympics. I think just – or I think he was even 19 in Beijing and then, you know, 24 yeah. is being the goal. They're just incredible. Not to say these guys haven't. It's it's really incredible talent met hard work ethic and opportunity. But with you, I would put you in the talented bunch. You know, definitely. I think you're amongst 
you know, probably another 20 to 15 exceptional athletes in the world. But for you, what I've loved is this consistent work ethic and application to the task over many, many, many years and and being able to keep that going even when you've, you know, got breaking sacrums or you've got nerve damage or anything else, you've been able to keep that consistency going. And that's where, that's what I really like about you and your career is that ability to keep dreaming, keep believing and keep pursuing. Um, it's just been exceptional to watch. And, you know, I just wanted to to let you know that. I mean, you know that already, but I just thought it was. Um, no, but it's it, it's funny. You know, there's, there's um, the Hungarian water polo player, Tibor Benedict, who's considered the greatest left-hand water polo player of all time, three-time Olympic champion, all these kind of things. He, he passed away last week and um, he, he said something that, I don't know, it, it almost got me to tears um, when I read it. It said, I never had a particularly good ball sense. I never played football or basketball well. I didn't throw particularly long shots with the ball and I threw them even shorter later in my career. I'm not particularly strong or smart. I don't swim too well, and my water level is completely average. <laughs> I always wanted it better. That was my talent. And it just, I don't know, it was, you know, it's so easy to say and it's so cliche to say, but it's definitely um, something where I just, it, it just resonated to a sense that there are always more talented people and all those tests at the Olympics, Olympic training centers, you know, when, Everybody tells you, oh, you're not this and you're not that and you're not straight enough and your back is too weak and, you know. You're too tall. You're too tall to win in Beijing because it's a hot race, all of that. (laughs) Totally. You're too heavy and all those kind of things. And it just, you know, Simon Whitfield actually once said, you do it for 98% of the reasons and uh, 98% of the good reasons and 2% is for the assholes out there. And it really does become about that, you know. It does, doesn't it? It does, just to stick it to them. (laughs) And, and, yeah, and and wanting it, just not even wanting it but needing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree and I I love that that quote. I might have to look it up and put it in the show notes because that's that's just fantastic. And I think it does describe you very, very well. I think, you, you know. And especially if you, you you have to consider winning the Olympics at 27 as at a late age, that it's an indicator of, you're there or thereabouts, but we we didn't. It, it's taken the work, you know, a lot of work and a lot of intent work to to get where you are. Your your, your family and um, Emma, these last few years, how's that been? You know, with all the success, um, with all the expectations, with all the the pressure that comes with it all. Um, how's that been with with you know? two beautiful kids and Emma now by your side and, and Felix. Tell me a little bit about that team of yours. Well, you, you know how it is in, in a normal household. You shut the door and all of a sudden everything is just, you know, you leave everything outside. Mm. And um, I think that's that's been the good thing is finding a normality at home and, and, and kids being a definite um, just – putting things into in in making things relative you know it's just sport is a beautiful thing but it's it's not the most important thing and that's what kids make make you realize and it really was that moment um in in 2016 having luca at the race for the first time in kona and just realizing that he actually doesn't care what happens on race day <laughs> you know it's like he just wants to play afterwards and and that really has been 
such an enriching process, you know, and my um, relationship with Felix hasn't changed at all over the years. You know, we've always been very intensely focused on trying to do sport on the one hand, but also grow, you know, grow a brand and, and, and make a living from it for, for both of us, which as you might know in triathlon is, is not that tricky, especially if you're trying to, you know, work it out for two families. <laughs> um, and, you know, these days uh, I've got Albert with me for quite a few years now, who's my physio, um, who's basically responsible to a large degree for me still being able to run and perform, you know, because it keeps me injury-free. And, um, yeah, so, you know, um, who else is there? Nick, Nick Castellane. We've now been training together for five years. I mean, mm. could you imagine training with the same person for five years <laughs> and still being happy to see each other at the pool? Like, that was – we were talking about it the other day. It's, it's such a rare partnership in sport because, mm. you know, you – you have a pact and then kind of it works out for a while and then it doesn't anymore. But that's been, you know, truly unique over the years. And, you know, other people come come and go, but it really has been a, a very fortunate find of, of good, actually I should say great people um, that have helped me along the way. And your coach, um, Dan Lorang, he's – Incredible, the success story behind him now with Annie Hug, he, uh, also winning the, the 2019 World Championships in Kona for the women. Um, how long have you been working with him now? Yeah, so um, Dan, I, I, I almost forget, forgot in the list because, well, we've been working together since 2012, mm -hmm. um, but we literally have a, <laughs> an online relationship. I don't I, – I rarely speak to him. Um, I, you know, I message him after sessions sometimes. So, he messages me sometimes. When we get closer to races, we start working a little bit closer, but he still gives me a day-to-day -day exact plan for every session and I follow it to a T because uh, he knows me incredibly well and we work together incredibly well. But we've just sort of found – our groove um, working this way. I mean, you might remember that I'm generally at least five, best case five, worst case 15 minutes late for every session. And, uh, you know, that, that drives a structured person up the wall and I totally get it. But <laughs> I'm lucky <laughs> to have found great people that have accepted my, my <laughs> consistency in being late because you've got to admit it's also a consistency if you're late all the time. You know, um, what's funny about that is... <laughs> Right before this podcast, I, I, I went through my mind and was of like, course, yeah, okay, no, no, this is hilarious. This is so random. I'm like, <laughs> I wonder when the text is going to come from Jan that he's 15 minutes late and literally, literally 30 seconds later, beep, and I, I actually texted Laura and I said, boom, it happened. I knew it was going to happen, but I did appreciate it. At least you told me. You, I mean, and I kind of knew you would be 15 minutes late, So, but at least you told me you were going to be 15 minutes late. And, and honestly, even I don't think, I, I think uh, most of the guests I've had on this show are, are generally 15 minutes late. So I think maybe it's an athlete thing. Uh, they're like, ah, another podcast. Oh, my God. So, mate, I, I can accept it because I really appreciate you at least coming on. But I, I want to just quickly just touch on a real couple of things before I let you go. If we were to say, what was the greatest performance of your career? Could you pick one? Oh, um. I don't know. I, 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 yeah, no, it'd have to be 2019 Kona, actually, I have to say. Um, 
despite 20, 2018, it'd have to be, yeah, that race that will stick to me, stick with me for a long time. And, and what about the most emotional high or almost surprise victory? Um, um, you know, I think the most surprising race that I'm one of the happiest with is very similar to what you said. And it was, I don't know if it was 2010 or, yeah, I think it was 2010 in Hamburg. Um, coming second to Javier actually. <laughs> wow. Um, it was, it was just one of those all out races where we just went and attacked and counterattack and attacked again and counterattacked. And I ended up getting the shorter end of the stick, but, um, that's probably the most surprising race uh, for most people that I would say definitely stands out to this day. I love that. I love that because I wasn't even remotely on my radar as one that I was waiting for. But I love the <laughs> fact that it is it is that. Um, I think that's just fantastic. And I think, you know, 2020 has been discussed. None of us know what's happening. How... Are you affected right now, you know, mentally, emotionally looking forward um, with planning? You know, you'll be, what, 39 in, in a month or so here. Um, in my eyes, you, you still got some time if you want it. I kind of think the late late 30s and early 40s are still sort of golden, but I, I also know how hard you pushed yourself, um, you know, your thoughts going forward. I loved when you – and just to – interrupt before you start i loved last year when you you kind of had you know because i can was the reason why you kept going um (laughs) and i love that is that that's still a mantra sort of being that you know iron man racing and and the world gets back to a little bit of normality i'm not sure what that is yet but i mean how are you dealing with that mentally and emotionally now um and and, and i guess physically preparing um what, where, yeah. where are you at the moment in your head with all of that? Well, you know, like the whole confinement was obviously a, a tricky one because you, you're like, oh, my God, what is going on here? Like, are we, is, it, is it ever going to come back to normality? Because we literally, we were police enforced, not allowed on the street, right? Mm. So, that was kind of scary being almost in a house arrest and then, of course, doing that try at home, Iron Man at home <laughs> thing, which um, – not so much physically, but emotionally was was still quite a big thing just because of all the attention it received. You're just like, well, what's going on here? And, you know, then with such a high comes a low and you're just sitting at home and, oh, you know, what, do, I really, do I really need to do this and just getting by with a minimum? And, and now I've just found a really good groove. Dialing my training back, uh, you know, sort of maybe four or five hours a week, um, but just finding a strict routine where I just do mm. get get it done without questioning, without looking for a finite time. Um, of mm. course, you know, I've had the September race on my mind, being able to go to race in Hamburg, which would have been awesome in front of a home crowd. Um, but also February Kona, let's be very realistic, is just, you know, it's it's a long way off and and, and far from uh, from likely in, in my eyes at the moment. I don't want to be mm. pessimistic or anything, but it's mm. just you're being um, realistic, yeah. Yeah, being realistic and, and also being ready to go. If somebody tells me you can race in four weeks' time, well, I'm ready to go <laughs> in four weeks' time. And, and and I've really enjoyed that process actually because you're going in a slightly lower flame but it actually, you know, you're also not that tired that you're not really able to enjoy the, the process. You're still tired and you're still challenging and but you're not setting up PBs and you're not, you know, taking the world apart because – that would just be silly at the moment. Mm, um, so, 
yeah, it's been, it's actually turned out to be quite rewarding at the moment. Yeah. It's almost like just ticking boxes, quietening the mind. I, I reference Mark Allen quite often in this show, just quietening the mind. Don't overthink anything. Just keep turning up, ticking the boxes and, and keep that consistency going. Um, and I think you're being realistic. I think it's hard. I don't think anybody should making, you know, flight plans or hotel bookings for anything for quite a long time, I think, uh, <laughs> until we do get that that normality. And look, if there is a February Kona, oh, be brilliant. I thought we would all be elated. Would that, you would probably go back to Australia to prepare for that or would you stay in Girona? I mean, Girona has been very good to you at the moment. Well, it, it has been very good, but you've got to remember that it's also uh, very, very cold um, <laughs> here in, in, in January and we have about, uh, I don't know, eight hours of light in a day and, you know, at this at the moment, it's it's not realistic to travel to Australia with all the travel restrictions and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, really, um, the US is is probably a, a place to go. But you know, I think over there, the world hasn't even seen um, the effects of Corona yet. And 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 remember, then we're also heading into winter. Not hasn't seen it. Sorry, that sounds totally wrong. It hasn't seen the full spectrum of it. Um, and 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 you know february is is winter for the northern hemisphere so it's just hard to see um yeah i'm mm. putting up a triathlon festival around that time it's interesting because the sport actually started i mean kona actually started in february way back and they changed it to october so the oh. northern hemisphere countries could all prepare properly you know, and, <laughs> and so there you are. It's going back to its roots almost with a February. And, and you touched on the Ironman you did at home, and, I, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it, um, just how inspiring and, uh, and amazing that was, um, you know, and I think you still did like a, an eight-and-a-half-hour Ironman or something, swimming in a backyard pool that looked freezing, by the way. Um, then, then the, you know, 180K bike on Zwift where you had people calling in, uh, wow. you know, I saw Cancellar and, and – Boris Becker and all sorts of people calling in, which I just thought was amazing. Um, and, and I think that was your event for 2020 almost in the sense that the build, <laughs> the build up and then the emotional low that comes quite often after an, an exceptional event. Uh, would you say that was the way? I mean, you raised a hell of a lot of money. It was over a quarter of a million dollars or a quarter million euros or something um, for charity. Yeah, but I mean, we've been talking about sporting events and sporting performances and you can't mention that in the same breath, you know. No, a, but you talk a, a about it. In, event and and it was you know, a, a chance to do something in, in this kind of time um, I, when you can't really do anything. But I, I don't have just champion athletes on this show. I have champion people. And I think that was an illustration of a champion person, um, that, that you did what you could in your way to be able to help others. And I think that was inspiring. So I think the show needs to hear a little bit about it. So there. <laughs> Uh, it, was, it was actually very rewarding in that time and and, and a, a very, very rewarding process also in hindsight, like to be able to to go out, you know, and, and, and choose your charities because the thing is, it's one thing to raise a quarter of a million euros, but then you're actually like, okay, what am I going to do with all this money? Mm. And it's really cool to be able to research foundations and, and you know, look at the hospital situation but also realize there, there, there are kids who don't have enough to eat just on the other side of town mm. and um, you know now we're starting a long-term project and and uh, looking at some options to put a put a pump track in there and, and build a little you know a school facility um, all because of something else that would you know during any other normal time be considered batshit crazy like <laughs> do an Ironman at home 
Um, but it was just the time that called for it and or, or, or enabled it. And um, yeah. Um, so how do people support you with those charities? Where is have you got that on your website? Or, or I mean, is there any way we can, you know, um, people listening want yet, to donate? I mean, yeah, the, the thing is we're, we're currently just looking at, you know, um, the official process and everything. We're busy uh, founding a, a foundation. Gotcha. And, and putting it all together, we haven't, uh, we haven't done it because at the moment, Laureus, the Laureus Foundation is actually helping us distribute the funds um, wherever we want to for immediate help. But um, the long-term project that we're building is, is currently being funded. We're looking at a plot tomorrow where we might be able to build our facility, you know, getting in quotes and yeah it's <laughs> another thing on the plate good on that's you mate I, that's fantastic rewarding. you're doing so much with 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 your notoriety and who you are and i think that's just absolutely brilliant mate so look this is i've taken a lot of your time and honestly I, next time i do this i just want to be sitting on your couch or on your deck in Girona with a beer and um after going for a few hour bike ride with you um around the mountains are you on the gravel gravel biking yet you know what's funny? I think you're about the third person on these shows that's like, Greg, you got to get on the gravel bike. I'm I'm really into my mountain biking. I'm a rubbish at it, but I'm really into it. Um, oh, but I, ha- I haven't got a gravel bike, mate. These days I've got to pay for bikes and, and I, don't, I think my wife would kill me. So uh, next time I come to Girona, I tell you what, I'll borrow the um, the electric bike again that Emma has and you can ride the gravel bike and we'll go for a I think it was the only time I've dropped you so easily was, was when, when I was in Girona. What cake. When was I there two years ago? I think I was there with you guys and uh, we went for that ride and man what a beautiful part of the world and um where else in the world would you recommend you know listeners trying out for training is it just your owner i mean you've spent time in noosa and i know you've had your clashes with some trucks and things there so i know it's not a favorite place but where, where would you say you know, I don't you know it's, it, it is it is my favorite place right here i mean that's why we moved here and i've i've, I've seen all the places and a lot of pe- places offer a lot of things i've actually never been to boulder so you know i've traveled but i haven't certainly haven't seen it all and i'm always happy to learn but for what we do we found a little paradise and indeed it is certainly worth a visit and um, Mm. yeah i can just recommend it for uh, any kind of sporting activity really that's the cool thing here you know whether you want to go climbing mountain biking swimming sailing you know uh skiing in the winter you know you know it's all here so it's um yeah it's a bit of a nice sporting playground well i know it's high on our list um both laura and i spoke you know after we spent that day with you guys a couple of years ago that it's a place that we'd at least like to explore living for a little while um and a great place for the kids to grow up and learn spanish and and everything else well, you're so always w- welcome at my barbecue with a cold beer and thanks, <laughs> and a gravel bike it might not thanks, have a buddy. for you <laughs> it sounds like the perfect day <laughs> Indeed, all, it is. all right mate well thanks so much um Stay on the line. I really appreciate it. I'll put in um, in the show notes all the links to your Instagram and everything else. I think you just yarn Fredino at everything, aren't you? Um, yeah. For people to I follow. Get on early. Yeah. So, uh, mate, absolutely fantastic to just share some some old stories and, and ventures with you, buddy. Can't wait till we catch up again in person. But uh, indeed, indeed. Thanks so much for your time and and, and insights and uh, all my love to the family. Yeah, you too, buddy. Stay on the line. Cheers. Take it easy. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode. 
so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.